everybody, I'm Debbie Montgomery Johnson, founder of the nonprofit The Woman Behind the Smile, and your host of Stand Up and Speak Up, a show that is about each and every one of us. Many of us have something, something we're hiding, something we're ashamed of, something that through no fault of our own or through our own making, we keep hidden, and that in turn keeps us hidden from each other and the world. Good people go through terrible situations. Wise people know when and how to let it go. Everything that happens to us helps us grow, and while it may be hard to see it right away, the most important thing to do is to change your perception about your circumstances. Regardless of what your personal experiences or traumas have been, this showcase series is designed to ignite the light in you, as well as providing safe harbor, education, personal growth, and resources so that no matter where you are on your journey, you'll have the courage to move on when you're ready. Stand Up and Speak Up features ordinary people who've been through extraordinary situations and struggles and found the courage to step out from behind their smiles and speak up about their experiences and the lessons gleaned from those experiences. Everybody heals at a different pace and we recognize that. So come on in, have a listen, and enjoy the ride at your own speed. Good morning, everybody. Good morning from paradise in sunny South Florida. It's a beautiful day down here in Florida, and I did just hear from my Canadian friends, and it's not too bad up there, but today it's a beautiful day in South Florida, and I have an incredible guest that I'm so excited. Uh, she reached out to me, but before I get to her, I just, just kind of a little pitch. My new book called A Gift Called Fearless, The Day She Discovered She Was Fierce and Strong, comes out on July 22nd, and as I was reading that title over again this morning, I'm thinking, my goodness, my guest today is that woman who gained the gift of being fearless when she realized that she was fierce and strong from the inside out. And I'm so excited to welcome my guest, Ms. Christine Handy, is here from Miami. Christine, are you there? I'm here. Thank you. Welcome, welcome. I'm so excited. Christine reached out to me, and let me just tell you a little bit about her, and then we're going to just jump right into the story because this hour is going to fly by. Christine is a mentor to many. She's a breast cancer survivor, a self-esteem expert. She's dealt with a lot of post-trauma, has a lot of wisdom, loves to share how to deal with her trauma, but she's an author. She's a humanitarian. She's a motivational speaker. She's probably the most important thing she would say is that she's a mom of two. Uh, she's a cancer thriver, not a survivor, a thriver. She's a cheerleader for other women. She's just done an incredible amount of work. She started off as an international model with her, her focus on outer beauty, and we're going to talk about where that went. So, Christine, again, I could, I could read your bio, but I really like to find out about my guests from their stories, and that's why we're here today. So, I take my guests back to their childhood. A little unusual, but I like to do this because I want to find out who the real Christine is and was and where you grew up, your family situation, if you had siblings, and where you, where you fell into that, uh, that line of, of kids. So, could you kind of tell us where you're from originally? Sure. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Actually born in Chicago, but moved to St. Louis when I was six, and I lived there until I went to college, um, and then went to Dallas to go to SMU, and then stayed in Dallas for quite a while. I knew that SMU. I wrote that down. My youngest brother went to SMU, and <laughs> after the show, we're going to figure out, I think you guys may be, you may be a little bit younger than he is, but uh, I have a, da a daughter in Dallas right now, so I spend some time out there, too. So, do you have any brothers and sisters? I have three sisters, and I'm number two, so I'm the second of four girls. Okay. And your sisters, when you guys were little, what did you like to do? What were your hobbies? Well, we went to the country club a lot, and we played tennis. We swam. Uh, we did travel a lot with our family. We had a home in Florida, and so we, we came to Florida quite a bit in the winter because my, my dad wasn't a big fan of the cold. So we did travel a fair amount as young, young ladies. Which is funny you say that the cold, when, when, when we outside of Texas think of Texas, I'm like, that's hot there. Until my mm -hmm. daughter yeah. moved there. It's the coldest place in the winter I think I've ever been, and I grew up in Vermont. <laughs> that's so interesting. In your youth, well, I think I, I read that when you were 11, you started modeling. Yes. What, what was like, life like as a 
child model, is the way I'm going to put it, because you were a young, a child model. Yes, yes very young. Um, I really liked it. I, I was the one that pursued it. Uh, from a very young age, it was clear that I was um, very pretty as a child. Mm-hmm. And there, were, um, there was an agency that pursued me, and I, I really begged and pleaded with my parents to allow me to do it. They really pushed back because they had four daughters in total, and they didn't want one to be doing something that maybe made the other feel bad or different. And so I, I think I just pushed them hard enough where I said, I'll be responsible, I'll get my schoolwork done, but please, you know, help me achieve this. This is a career I want to pursue, and ultimately they gave in and, and helped me get through it. And I, well, ultimately I modeled for now 40 years. That's a really tough profession, though. And I, I was thinking about it. Were you, as a child, and most of us, I think, well, not most, I shouldn't say that, but many of us are, are thin as children. Did you feel like you had to, were you naturally thin, or did you have feel like you had to be thin because of that atmosphere? I was naturally thin, but as I grew older and as my, you know, I went through puberty and my chest grew and my body grew and my hips grew, I developed an eating disorder, which I talk very openly about. Yeah. Ultimately, ultimately, I was hospitalized between my freshman and sophomore year uh, for anorexia. Yeah, I hadn't heard you talk about that, but I was just wondering. I, I've heard of so many stories about young women in that profession that that happens to. Well, I don't know that. Of course, it's it's partially driven by that, but it was also like partially driven by my own insecurity. Mm. And and where do you attribute that to? I mean, you had a grew up well and and what made you feel insecure i well you know i think that young you know as a young woman i have never found young women between the ages of 13 and 18 to be very secure in themselves <laughs> yep. you know, i think it's a diff, I, it's such a difficult age and then you put that modeling industry in it and you put just you know having you know competitive sisters and and, and living in a competitive family and you put all of those things into the, the the book, so to speak, and it you know it can cause things to happen. And for me, I don't really like to blame you know the modeling industry. I love the modeling industry; it gave so much to me. But it also you know we also got weighed in when we went to the agency. We also you know we were turned away if our hair didn't look exactly like our comp card, and our comp card is like a resume. And so you are constantly criticized and, you know, cut up, so to speak. And so, yeah, your, your self-esteem definitely takes a toll. But we're not, at that age, I wasn't mature enough to know what was happening. I had a marginalized perspective because I was the one walking through that. And so if I had taken a, you know, a, a step back to really look at it, I would have known, okay, I'm taking, my self-esteem taking hits. I need to nurture it in other ways. But we don't have that capability, that wisdom at that young age to do that. And many times we don't have it at our ages. Yeah. No, I've done a lot of self-work, and I, I do it on a day-to-day basis. But, yes, you're right. It was interesting. I was, I was speaking with a woman yesterday, and she does uh, something called the body code. And she got to one point of the assessment. It was done virtually. And she said, something happened when you were 18 that hmm. changed you. And I'm thinking back. I knew exactly what it was. And she started laughing. She goes, do you, do you re- remember something like that? And I said, I absolutely do. I'm 63 now, but when I was 18, 19 years old, I broke up with my first boyfriend. Or he broke up with me. And he was the love of my life at the time. And that, I can still feel that. You know, and she said there was something about abandonment or something about feeling left out. I'm like, oh my gosh, that happened when I was 18 years old. And it's still somewhere in my body. I've released a, a lot of it, but I've... I'm so grateful that I, you know, never got with him. But after my husband died a few years ago, he reached out to me. And when he heard what I was doing with the woman behind the smile, he was so concerned. And he said, Deb, I'm concerned because you keep saying that you, when you started dating at 52, you hated it because you didn't like dating when you were 16. I said, well, it wasn't that I didn't like dating at 16. It was the breaking up part at 18, 19 that I didn't like. And... Right. That stuck with me. So those things really get held in our bodies for a long time. And like you said, you've done some self-help work, and so have I. And it really does make a huge difference. 
Yeah, we have, we, I think a lot of us have that spirit of rejection, and that's, that's hard to get through. Yes, and so that's why I was thinking about that career. I mean, I had my boys in, in modeling when they were little, but it was so competitive. And honestly, I didn't like the parents. <laughs> I didn't like dealing with them. Um, well, then, it's interesting. Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times the child is pushed into the industry because of the parents. In my mm-hmm. case, it was quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I'm looking at your picture, and it, it's just so beautiful. And that's what I'm thinking. There's a story behind this woman with a smile. So let's mm-hmm. jump into that story because after you got out of school, you kept modeling, and then you got married, had children. But tell me about what medically has happened in your life and when it started? So I I guess the first thing would be the anorexia, um, which ultimately I was hospitalized for and and recovered from. I, at 35, I was very healthy, strong, I mean, I I call myself a self-proclaimed athlete. A lot of tennis, a lot of walking, a lot of running and triathlons and things like that. And I had a a colon issue, which I didn't really know about until I had an, a pain in my abdomen and ultimately had an emergency surgery on my colon at 35. And when the doctor was doing the surgery, which was supposed to be laparoscopic, he nicked one of the veins in my pelvis. Now, it, one of the veins in my bones in my pelvis, I didn't even know we had veins in our bones. And so during the surgery, when he nicked that vein, he knew that I was a model because I told him I was a model. I had brought in my comp card and said, listen, I, please be careful with the surgery because I do, I'm JCPenney's lingerie girl. So mm. like, you know, in the, I'm their newspaper girl. I'm their billboard girl. So when you see people in the newspaper, women in the lingerie section or the bathing suit section, that's me. Be careful. And he was very aware of that. And so when he nicked a vein, he, he didn't want to open me wide open to figure out where that source of blood was coming from. And so he spent too much time trying to find it orthoscopically until ultimately I had lost so much blood that it became an emergency surgery, an emergency recovery. And they put a port in my neck. Again, I'm 35 years old. They put a port in my neck and started to do blood transfusions during the surgery and he cut me, you know, from hip to hip and ultimately pinned the source of the, the nick in the pelvis and then, you know, took out the amount of colon that he needed to take out. But that surgery was my first major, major brush with death. And when I woke up in the recovery room, the pain was so extraordinary. And I looked up and I didn't have my contacts on and I could see this blood bag over my head and I had no idea what had happened. And it took me about a year to recover from that because I had some complications to that surgery. And I also, my red blood cells weren't multiplying quick enough. And so I had to do another blood transfusion, which I honestly, like at 35 and you're healthy and you're strong and you, you know, you're raising two boys and you, you're modeling and and life seems pretty perfect. And then this, something like this happens to you, it really knocks you off your feet. And so, you know, going through, you know, a year of doctor's appointments and trying to heal was very difficult for me. I can imagine. I can't imagine. I mean, I, I, I've only had one major surgery, and that was on my leg, and, I, and it was knee surgery, so I, I understand that. And so the recovery period, too, did you ever get back into modeling? I did, but it wasn't for a long time. I did, but it wasn't for a long time after. So fortunately, my, my body scars really well. Mm-hmm. It, it almost makes the scars invisible, and I'm, I'm so grateful for that. But it was a long time because they took 28 inches out of my colon, which seems like a lot, but we do have a lot. Mm-hmm. But the, the, the 28 inches that they took, you know, our colon digests certain enzymes in different places in your colon. And the majority of the colon they took out was the place where we digest sugar. And so mm. I kept... I was very, very sick after the surgery and, and the doctors in Dallas could not figure out the colon doctor. And I had a couple other specialists couldn't figure out why I was vomiting and having these other side effects after the surgery. So ultimately I went to the Mayo clinic and they diagnosed me with fructose intolerance, which is an allergy to sugar. So it was after that surgery that I could never eat sugar again to this day. Well, that's where I would say, Oh, bah humbug. <laughs> I, I understand, but, 
Whoa, that's tough because the sugar's in everything. So you've got well, to see, be that's the thing. It's so funny that you say that because people, you know, they, if they know that, they go, oh, well, you know, you can't have sweet. Well, no. <laughs> You're right, I can't. But there's about five vegetables I can eat. There's about five fruits I can eat. Sugar is quite literally in everything. So I have yeah. to be very careful. Now, now I'm, I'm very attuned to what I can and cannot eat anymore. Obviously, that was many years ago. Mm-hmm. But it took, it took quite a while for me to figure out how to eat. So that was kind of my first major illness. And then fast forward, six years later, I had an orthopedic injury. I had a torn ligament in my right wrist which again, isn't traumatic, it is not the end of the world. And I went to see three different doctors and I picked a doctor that I thought could do the best job. He went to Stanford and you know, that kind of pedigree was an influence in my decision. He was a young doctor, he said he could do it orthopedically. He said I could be back doing yoga and all my sports by Christmas, this was October. And I believed him. And so sure enough, he did the surgery and six weeks go by and they take off the cast and life is fine for about two days, <laughs> literally two days. And two days later, I was at an event and a friend of mine bumped into my arm and the pain was shocking, literally shocking. And I looked down at my arm and it started to swell. And by the next morning, my right arm looked like my thigh bone. And the swelling was grotesque. The pain was extraordinary. And I was very timid about calling my doctor that Sunday. I actually asked my husband to, because I just has, I have always been taught, you know, to respect authority, to be very careful about people's times and, you know, not to overstep my boundaries. Right. Like I feel like as a woman, we're taught that. And, and so that was kind of like burned into my brain. And so I timidly called him on a Sunday in the emergency line and he, you know, spoke to me over the phone and he said, how long have you been icing your arm? And I said, for hours, because I had been icing it for hours because that was giving me some relief. And he said, take off the ice. I think you've over iced it. It can be a side effect. And of course, I'm thinking to myself, the guy went to Stanford. I didn't go to medical school. And when you're in pain, you depend on anybody's advice, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're in so much pain that you can't even think straight. And so I was like, okay, I took off the ice. A few days go by, and I said to my husband, I need to go see the doctor. It's not getting better. I could not get out of bed. I stopped eating and drinking even water because I didn't even want to get up to use the restroom. I was carrying my arm like a child on my chest because it was so swollen and, and the pain was so grotesque. And now I, have, I had been in pain in my life. Like, I knew pain. Um, and so I knew what pain, you know, I knew the extraordinary pain that I was in. And so my husband called the doctor and we went in and he did not see me. He sent me to my, his physical therapist who was in his office. And she said, you've done too many exercises. I'm going to splint it. And she sent me home. And, you know, again, there were some red flags, but when you're in that kind of pain, which is extraordinary, you tend to believe the medical profession. And so a week another week went by and I'm getting sicker and sicker. Like my, I'm getting nauseous and my, my hair is starting to thin. And, you know, there's, there were some pretty thing, you know, extreme things going on. And so I had, I had my husband call the doctor again and we went in and he diagnosed me with what he, what he called was RSD. And RSD is a syndrome where your brain is telling your limb. In this case, it was my right arm, that there's pain and trauma, but there really isn't. And so he sent me from his office, he sent me to a pain management doctor who concurred with his diagnosis. So now I've seen two doctors, two medical professionals that they, both of them told me I had RSD. So now I heard somewhere, or I was, when I was doing my research, I heard that your mom said, get a second opinion. Why didn't you do that? Just question. Um, there's a couple answers to that. Yes. My mother was the one that kept saying you have an infection. There's some, I know that there's something else wrong. So in the meantime, this doctor sent me to physical therapy. And so I was seeing a physical therapist and I would ask the physical therapist, do you think I should see another doctor? And he, and he concurred and he said, no, this is RSD that you've got the best doctor in Dallas. He's the Dallas Mavericks 
orthopedic surgeon uh, and, and on and on and on. And I, I would ask other people, I asked my husband and same story. No, he's the best doctor, blah, blah, blah. And so I was listening to other people. I wasn't listening to myself and I wasn't listening to my mother. And it took me months. I mean, months of physical therapy when I went in every single day, five days a week, um, because my doctor would told me that with RSD, you have to fight to get any movement back in this case of my wrist. And I had a finite amount of time with RSD. Ultimately it freezes whatever limb. And that for me, it was my right wrist. And so I had six months. So I was going into physical therapy every day, fighting to get motion in my wrist. Ultimately, I finally got up enough courage seven months later to see another doctor. And I had an infection in my arm the entire time. So every single day that I was going to physical therapy, it was breaking every bone in my wrist. Ultimately, every single bone had fallen into a pile at the base of my wrist, and I had no cartilage left. And so I almost lost my arm. That mm -hmm. doctor immediately took me into surgery and cut out as much infection as he could. I had a bone infection called osteomyelitis, which is one of the hardest infections to get rid of. They stuck a pick line in my arm and said, we aren't sure what's going to happen from here. We have to, I went to see a, 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 a doctor who was a specialist on this type of infection. And that person said, I'm not sure how long it's going to take for you to have a pick line. I'm not sure how much, how much damage has been done. And so it was about six weeks. So now go, going back, this is now eight months of extreme pain and fighting to save my wrist, to help my wrist, when it, in actuality, I was hurting it every single day. So imagine not just the physical trauma, but the emotional trauma that went on with that. Well, in the process, you still have a family. You have children and a husband. And I'm what? trying to take care of my life. I'm trying to take my kids to the doctor. I'm trying to get my kids to school. Now, I fortunately had a, a mountain of women help me during that year. But I mean, and, and I was in different casts. And so there were days and there were weeks where I couldn't drive. Mm. And the pain was so extraordinary throughout this. And I did not want to take any pain medication because it was making me foggy and it was upsetting my stomach. So I was trying to basically do it on my own because of the other consequences to pain management. I mean, to pain, you know, taking pain medication. And, and these doctors were feeding me pain medication and I was, I was filling the prescriptions, but I wasn't taking it. Mm. And so... And then, and then, and interestingly enough, about six months into this, my, the openings of the orthopedic process that originally was from the original surgery, there was a piece of metal that popped out. And I texted a picture of that piece of metal to my surgeon. And he said, how do I know that you didn't, this is a, this is a quote. How do I know that you didn't take that picture on the arm of an airplane? Oh my gosh. And it, it shocked me, but it shamed me. And it literally kept me. I didn't tell my husband. I didn't tell my mother. I didn't tell any of my friends because I thought, am I making this up? He started to really get into my head. And I thought, this is my fault. You know, you can be bullied so badly that you, it, it's, well, it's called gaslighting, that you internalize it and, and think, I am making this up. You start to believe the bullies, right? Absolutely. And so, and my mother would get so frustrated with me and then I would get frustrated with her and I'd say, mom, I, I'm going to the best doctor. I have all these opinions. I have this PT guy. I have this pain management woman and they're all concurring with his diagnosis. And it was just this circus really of, of this medical community, medical community that was backing each other up, but they had no intention of helping me. And, and so ultimately my arm was fused and you know, I, I can keep going. I, five days after I, well, my, I was diagnosed with breast cancer right after my arm was fused. So I, I heard, and this is interesting because I've always talked about in my life, the call, the call that I got when my husband passed away. And I've had other guests that have gotten the call that has changed their life. So you got the call. So tell our audience, what was the call that you got? Where were you and what was said? So I was in my bedroom in my home, I had a cast on my right arm from my fingertips to my shoulder. I could not dress myself. I could not bathe myself. I was wandering around my house looking for my husband because I knew that I was going to get a call that morning because I'd found a lump in my breast five days earlier. 
Nobody was home. And I looked at, and my phone rang and I looked at it and it was unknown number, but I knew the area code. And I picked up the phone and I heard this very meek voice say to me, and I knew it was a doctor because it was a man's voice. And I said, he said, is this Christine Henney? And I said, yes. And he said, you have breast cancer. And the first thing that I said to him was, am I going to die? That was my first reaction was, am I going to die? And after he, he did not answer that question. And after that, I really have no memory of the rest of that day. Did you go into his office? He actually said to me, I need to see you and your husband tonight at 5 o'clock. And I did not go to his office. I could not take anything else that day. Mm. I said to my husband, I need you to go. I need you to take notes and get all of the information, but I can't go. And ironically enough, I had a, a pretty major fight that night with my husband because he was like, I'm, I'm not going. I, I, you need to go. This is about you, not me. And that was, that was, a, that was another red flag. <laughs> Looking back. Anyway, I did not go. Oh, my, my brain is just like going in circles. Um, and then, but then I did hear too that when you were, you were getting set up to go into chemo, you couldn't because of your arm. Can you explain what happened there? Right. So because my arm had just been bone grafted and fused, I had a cadaver bone and I had bone grafts from obviously cadaver. And when I was diagnosed with cancer, it was right after this fusion. And my oncologist said, well, if we start chemotherapy, that those bone grafts and that cadaver go, bone are going to dissolve. And so we had to postpone chemo by 30 days because of the situation with my arm, which Again, you can't imagine the emotional trauma when you hear that because when you're diagnosed with cancer, you want it out immediately yeah. and you want to start treatment. And to, to be postponed because of, of the malpractice from my doctor was, was shocking. So what was going through your mind? I mean, I can, I, or wasn't it? I mean, there are times after trauma like that, and, and I, I went through it after Lou died, where you just go into this, I called it um, suspended animation. You just, life is going on around you and you don't really process what's going on. How did you deal with the day-to-day -day as you were waiting? Well, first of all, I was trying to figure out how I was going to live the rest of my life with a fused right arm. My, and my right arm mm -hmm. is my dominant arm. So I was now permanently handicapped. And I, and I was trying to just digest that trauma. And then to be diagnosed with cancer. Now, I was 41 years old. I was young. I was, had no family history of it. And I, had, I was allergic to sugar. So I, it never, ever crossed my mind that I would have breast cancer. It didn't even cross my mind. And my mother's best friend had died of it three years ago. There was three years prior to that. And, and so my mom was still emotionally wrecked because her best friend died of it. And then I was diagnosed with it. And so I was living in a constant state of fear. I had no faith in the medical system. I, I couldn't even trust the new doctors that I had to hire, which was an oncologist and a breast surgeon. I had no trust in them. And I really didn't have trust in, in general in people because I had been so let down. And so I just, I just quit. I just said, you know what? I can't depend on the medical field. I had already used up all, this is my thought process. I had already used up all the, the tokens from my friends and family over the past year because they drove my kids. They fed my family while I was dealing with this arm issue. Now I'm handicapped. Now everything that I believed in, like my value was my, what I looked like was now about to disappear. And so I quit. I just said, I can't, I can't, I can't go on. And you were serious about that. I, I heard that, you know, that when you were thinking about saying this is the end and you waited for your son to come home from school, tell that story. So I just decided that I didn't know if I was going to survive the breast cancer. I, again, was, had a very, very low self-esteem. I didn't have the courage to ask people to stand by me for the next 15 months because they told me I was going to have 15 months of, of chemotherapy. It was so daunting to me that I said, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to start to control this situation, so I'm going to take my life. And, and that was the only way. It's kind of that fight or flight. I was mm -hmm. like, I'm leaving. And, and looking back, it was definitely, I was trying to control, I was trying to control something in my life because I had no control of anything. 
And again, if I was so heavily dependent on the external, my external facade, my beautiful blonde hair, you know, the, the modeling jobs that I was getting, and that was all going away, maybe permanently. And I couldn't handle it because I had no idea who I was inside. And so I said to myself, okay, I'm now taking myself out of the equation. I got to figure out how I'm going to take my life, but I'm taking my life. And I was essentially waiting for my son to get home from boarding school to say goodbye to him. Now, I wasn't going to tell him I was taking my life, but I was going to, I was plotting it. And he, in the meantime, my friends were showing up and they were showing up every single day, which was starting to give me some courage. They were saying to me, we will never forsake you. God will never forsake you. And we will cover you, even though it's season after season of illness for you, we've got you. And I just didn't believe him at first. But my son was supposed to come home the first weekend after I was diagnosed, and he got in trouble at school. Mm-hmm. And, and so that was postponed, and I was, you know, just trying to get through to the next weekend to see him. The next weekend, he got in trouble at school and couldn't come home. So for three weekends, he got in trouble. And so by the time he actually came home, my friends had fed me so well, fed my soul, fed my self-esteem, you know, were teaching me that my story would have purpose, that there would be meaning to all of this pain and suffering, and that someday when I was rooted in my own, you know, faith and, and rooted in what was really more important, which was who I was inside, not who I was outside, that I would be able to, you know, share the story and I would survive this. And so I started to actually believe them. And so once my son came home, I, I was all into fighting for my life. So it, it really took that month of him being delayed for me to start believing that I was going to get through chemotherapy, even though it was, that was a blind faith, right? I had no idea. Mm-hmm. And, and so, so you, you, you call yeah. your friends angels, which is definitely true. They're angels on earth. Yes. Yeah, they are really the champions. Now, don't get me wrong. I did. I was the one that had to go sit in that chemo chair. I was the one that, and to date, I've had 23 non-elective surgeries. Wow. Just that alone is traumatic. You can't even imagine the trauma and the physical pain that comes with that and all the anesthesia and all the doctor's appointments. And, you know, I do live in chronic pain because of my arm. I, there, I've not had a day in 10 years that I haven't had major chronic pain in my arm, even though it's fused the pain is, is still extraordinary and I don't take pain medication. And so I really just started to trust and I started to have faith in the process. And I started to believe that my story would have meaning because, you know, to go from being so heavily dependent on what I look like and to have a career I had to being, you know, to completely losing it and to be bullied and to, and to show the world, like I, you can have a self-esteem that has, you have zero self-esteem. And to go from that to where I am now, which is I, I'm so rooted in who I am, I have total faith in who I am, that the, the story is extraordinary because it gives people hope. It gives people a measure of like, okay, I don't measure my life. I don't measure my success from society, which I used to be completely dependent on society. And to see that transformation, like people who read my book, it gives them hope in their own life. So I think that's why I ultimately, you know, started to fight for my life when I was going through chemotherapy because I was like, okay, I'm going to use my story to help other people. Well, and you have, and it's extraordinary. And, and again, I, when I when I first when you first reached out to me, and of course I looked up the pictures, I looked up the story, and I'm looking at the pictures, going, well, boy, she's beautiful. She's just drop dead gorgeous, a wonderful woman. And thinking, why would she want to be on my show? And of course, you know, that's when my insecurity came up, and I'm like, well. I'm not sure I can have somebody like her. And then I started listening to your story. I'm like, oh my gosh, she's just like I am. You know, we have we have so much that we've, we've learned through pain that our purpose comes from the things that we've experienced. And it, I can hear it in you. I can feel it in you that it's not about you. It's about what happened so that you can help someone else. And it's definitely, yes. It's, I will say it's, I used to live a very self, fulfilling life, right? Like my day I woke up and I would, you know, maybe look and try to put on a face and makeup and hair that maybe looked a little messy so that when I walked out into the world, it looked like I wasn't trying, but I was like, trying a lot. <laughs> to now, to now, I, I don't, I, I don't really, nobody's opinion matters to me. 
you know, my worth is in my faith. My worth is in whose I am, which, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. And my measure is based on that relationship, not of society, not of the accolades. There, my success isn't dependent on anything external ever again. Well, and that's incredible. And honestly, I didn't want to sensationalize the pictures, but I did put the two, two of your pictures together, the one where you know, you're in the, your beautiful white blouse with your long flowing blonde hair, and the other was when you had your cap on after chemo. So I'm assuming that you lost your hair because of the chemo? Or I did. Oh, no, I lost every single bit of it, yeah. <laughs> every so, single strand. So how did, how did you deal with that? When you looked at a mirror... Did you see you? How, how did you get through that process? Because I've, I've heard a lot of women talk about that. They, sometimes, you know, they'll walk past a mirror and not recognize themselves. Well, you, well if, you're, if your listeners do look at those pictures, I am unrecognizable. And I think that is really powerful because you can go from being, you know, so, well, you can go well, from no. being looking. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was an international model. I, I worked in Europe and, and, and to lose everything that I thought was my value and, mm-hmm. to, and to look like an 80-year-old woman, you know, was going through chemotherapy with no hair and a port in my chest and now scars and a fused arm, it, it was challenging, obviously. I mean, that's, I'm minimizing it. But I was being filled each and every day by what I was listening to. I started to listen to preachers. I started to listen to faith-based music. I started to listen more to people that were cheering me on and telling me what my value really was versus my modeling agent, right? Who was saying, okay, you, you don't, you have to be this certain weight and look like this. I was shifting in who I was listening to. Mm-hmm. And I was also shifting in, uh, and I was listening to myself. And it origi- first I was listening to the critical self, but then I was starting to change that. And I was trying to take those thoughts captive and say, okay, no, you're not going to criticize yourself. You're not going to tell you that your value, you have no value anymore. And even though I didn't necessarily believe it in the beginning, the more you tell yourself something, the more you believe it. And so I started to tell myself I was worthy, that this, that this story had meaning. And then my, my vision started to change and my value started to change and what I was putting out into the world started to change. And, you know, people are watching. When you go through trauma, I'm sure when you've gone through your trauma, people are watching how you react. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't know if I was going to survive cancer. But the result, it didn't matter what the result was necessarily. It really mattered. What mattered was my reaction. I could either teach people courage or I could teach people how to be a victim. And I wanted to teach people courage. I was teaching myself, but I was also modeling that to my family, to my friends, to the community that I lived in. And people were, they were reacting to that, right? And it had almost a wave effect because I was making the choice to be faithful. I was making the choice to show hope. I was making the choice to smile through extraordinary pain. Well, and and it works because, like you said, it is infectious when someone shows hope and gets out of that victim mentality because it's very easy to fall into being the victim of something that somebody did it, like you said earlier, you know, to blame, to blame modeling, to blame the doctor, to blame all these people. Now, there there is responsibility that needs to be taken by some of the people in your life, but you took responsibility for you and the way you were going to deal with it. And that's what I look at. That's the story that we want to tell is we all have something that's happened. Yeah. And the other thing is I was tired of carrying that baggage. I was tired of carrying the anger that I had for that doctor. It was hurting me. He didn't care that he had hurt me. And so it was like this poison was poisoning me every single day. And I was, I was bitter and I was angry. And I I was like, why me? And instead I, I started to tell myself, why not me? Yep. And that just telling yourself that, even though you don't believe it in, in the beginning, you're going to believe it. You're going to keep believing it. And so I just had to start talking to myself differently. And I started to listen to different people. And that really was the shift. Well, and, and once you start telling the story, and I'm sure I, I felt this, especially after getting the book, writing the book and getting it out, is that the emotions of actually what happened change. They're not all about you now. The emotions become very positive because you know that there's someone sitting beside you that's going through the same thing that was feeling alone, and now they're not alone because she went through it. And if look how well she's doing, if she can be that way, then I can be that way. 
Yeah, and here's the other thing. If I can go around and I can preach about how amazing my friends were, which I do, and I can say to that, I can say to people, I can be on interviews and say this all day long. My friends carried me. My friends did this. My friends, blah, 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 blah. But if I don't tell the other part of the story, I plotted my suicide. The pain was extraordinary. I wanted to end my life. You know, there were some days I didn't know if I'd wake up the next morning. If I don't tell both sides of the story, I'm not painting an accurate picture. It's not going to help anybody. Right. In being vulnerable and sharing the mucky and the muddy stuff and the, the most horrible things about the disease or the arm or the other trauma or the emotional pain, that's when we touch lives. We can't sugarcoat it because it doesn't help people feel less lonely. People are alone in their pain and in their trauma because they don't realize that other people have felt that bad. Well, and, and many people don't have those friends around, and they are, they are literally alone. They're alone in their home. They're alone, you know, with no one to help, and then waiting on the doctors and everybody else thinking that this, they're, they're going to get the right information, and when they don't, they may not still be around today. The, the modeling world, how did they look at you or embrace you, or what happened with that afterwards? Well, I didn't work obviously for quite a while because I had no hair. <laughs> um, and, but once my hair grew back, I wasn't sure I wanted to go back into the industry mm-hmm. and it was not until about two years ago. So this was when, I guess this was seven years, well, six years after I was diagnosed with cancer. I went, I, I well, I was, somebody approached me about modeling again and I signed with an agency two years ago. So I do model now. Mm-hmm. It's not my bread and butter. I'm mostly a motivational speaker, but it, it feels very homey to me because I've done it for so long. And so when I take a job, I love it. But I know where I set my boundaries, right? It doesn't, it doesn't, that doesn't define me. It doesn't give me my value. But yeah. I do love to be in that space because it's different now for me. Well, it also gives you an opportunity to the women that have, you know, that have gone through the chemo and have lost their hair to say, look, it comes back. You can still do these things and, and exactly. be a beautiful person. And you've actually done a lot of humanitarian work, and I love the stuff that you do with the breast cancer survivors. It's called, what was it called, E-Beauty? Yes, yes. So E-Beauty is a wig exchange program. I'm on the board of that company. And it's a nonprofit, and we take in donations of wigs that people have used. We have partnered with L'Oreal and the Paul Mitchell Salon. L'Oreal gives us grant money to pay for the shipping because we ship them out to people. And Paul Mitchell Salons, they wash and style our wigs. To date, we have redistributed over 55,000 wigs to women in the United States who couldn't afford a wig during treatment. That's extraordinary. Thank you for for doing that. I, uh, my grandma years ago, this was back in the 80s, my grandma was diagnosed with cancer, and I remember when she started wearing the wigs, they were just not, she could imagine back then, I guess it was in the 70s, um, right. they looked like wigs. <laughs> they didn't look like right. today's, today's hair. And, uh, and that, that gives hope because, you know, I even think when you put a towel around your head and you're looking at your face, without your hair, it's a different person. And, well, and, especially if you take the eyelashes off. I mean, you know, when I lost my eyelashes and my eyebrows, then yeah. I was really a different person. Right. So giving someone at least a little bit of hair around their face, I'm sure gives them that, that a different look at them, you know, a different way to look at themselves. Like there's hope again. My children wanted me to wear a wig. They Did didn't they? like to see me bald. And so that's more, I, you know, wigs are not that comfortable, especially when you have a bald head. And so when I was at home, oftentimes when my kids were at school, I would wear just like a beanie, like that picture you have. Yeah. But when they were home, I had a wig on. They wanted their mom to look like their mom. Wow, that's tough. I was, I was uh, gone this weekend, and I was swimming with a gal that had been through chemo. And she wore a little baseball cap when she came to the pool. And, yeah. you know, she's fine. And my, my mother-in-law, actually, when one of her best friends uh, went through chemo and lost her hair, my mother-in-law actually shaved her head to go with her. So you see that happening, That's too. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, she's done it twice now. And I'm thinking, well, did your hair grow back curlier or better? <laughs> but it was just the, the point of supporting her friend. And that extraordinary. incredible. Extraordinary yeah, to do that. Before we go, because I, I knew this hour was going to fly by, there's one other... Uh, humanitarian effort that you are involved in and this if I like I said I've said this in the past if I had a second or third lifetime 
I would be working with the young men and women who have been incarcerated and have gotten mm. out and have had such a difficult time with reentry. You actually yes. started a nonprofit up in Palm Beach. I was hired a few years ago to speak in the prison system in the state of Florida. And ironically enough, it's been all male prisons. And because people think of my, my audience as more female-based, which is it's really not true. I, my, my vision and my speeches are mostly of just hope, right? And so I was speaking in a prison about two hours west of Palm Beach, and a couple of the inmates really were wanted to be more in alignment with me. And so prisoners are allowed to email you if you, allow, if you accept that. And so this one particular prisoner would email me a lot and say, I'm getting out in a couple of years. Can I, you know, follow you on Facebook? And I said, sure, or whatever. you know, that's fine. And I would mentor him over the two years that he was still incarcerated. And when he got out of jail, we met in Palm Beach County at a, a little pizza place. And he said to me, he said, why would you meet me? And I said, why wouldn't I meet you? You know, he had this perception that you know, somebody out in the world would be afraid of him or whatever his perception was. And I was like, no, you don't scare me. I'm not afraid of anybody. And I wouldn't come here if I was uncomfortable. And so we, over the last three years, have started a nonprofit. And we are trying to change the rate of recidivism in Palm Beach County. He and I have developed this board of people who are incredible uh, this incredible pedigree of people who bring so many different talents into this nonprofit. It's called People of Purpose. And we are try literally trying to change the rate of recidivism by helping to educate inmates when they're inside the jails before they get out. So they have some skills so that when they get out of jail, they can go have a job. You know, right now, most inmates are come out with a bunch of fines and no ability to work. And so that's the, you know, the nonprofit that we started is that's what we're doing. Well, I would like to get involved with you because my son went through that. And yeah. as, as a mother, you, the whole system is so daunting and frightening. I mean, I had a lot of really good background, but when it's your child in that system and when they get out and the, hope, yeah. the hopelessness that they feel or even trying to you know, get a job and trying to say what happened even if it's not, you know, not, they didn't kill anybody. It's just they've made some poor choices. It's just extraordinarily well, difficult. The, and the system is set up for them to go back to jail. That's what Absolutely. it's set up for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and it's a business. It, of course. It's, there's yeah. such a moneymaker. So that could be a whole different show. But I just wanted to touch on that because I, I find yeah. that extraordinary. And I didn't know if you had any personal contact and now I I also did hear uh, an interview you did with Jim St. Germain and he had written a book called you know, he works with the National Juvenile Defender Center and I'm thinking how come I never heard about that back in the day I don't know if it's here in Palm Beach County um, but there's so much work that needs to be done because there are a lot of kids yeah. that just made mistakes and have it on their record and it's hard to get that off uh, and yeah. they don't see hope and, and it That's takes right. time. It takes time. So thank you for doing that. And I'm going to look into that. And um, so how can people get a hold of you? But, well, but before we do that, tell them about your book. I think the book's fun. Um, it's not, <laughs> thank it's you. not a memoir, but it is about your story. So my book is called Walk Beside Me. It is a fictional depiction of my life. Um, the, even the emails in the book and the text are accurate. I actually hired an independent company to interview 28 people that helped me throughout my journey with my arm and cancer. Mm -hmm. And we took, we took literally their transcripts, their side of the story and my story, and we made a fictional depiction of my life. Um, and it's actually becoming a film. We've been working on it for about three years. It's called Willow, the feature film. And so that's been an exciting project. But my book is, is, a, is, a, is a story of hope. There's a lot of pain and suffering in it and a lot of vulnerability, which is, I think, why people like it. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a, it's a good read. It's been well-received, so I'm very, I'm very proud of that. And that's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and any place you can find books? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Okay, again, called Walk, with, uh, Walk Beside Me. How can people get a hold of you? Well, my website is christinehandy.com. I'm on most 
social media platforms is Christine Handy One on Instagram, and I'm also on Facebook and and Twitter. I don't tweet a lot, but you know, if you Google if you Google Christine Handy, you will. There's a lot of information, so come I do, and I I'm, and I'm very accessible. I do respond to, you know, all the messages and I really appreciate the messages. People are so encouraging mm-hmm. and we can provide, you know, we can really provide each other a courage net by cheering each other on, even total strangers. And I'm a big believer in that. So all the messages that I get that encourage me, they give me more courage to help other people. Well, and that's one of the, one of the tags I put on here that you, you're such a cheerleader for other women. And you know, how was it being a cheerleader for yourself. And that's what our story's been about today is, is sometimes you just got to, you know, walk one step, one step at a time through the mud to get through yeah. it and, and, exactly. then, and then take the shower and get it off. You know, let it, let it go. Let it go because that past doesn't define you, but it does make you who you are. And you're doing some wonderful things. And I, I really thank you for, for, for standing up and speaking up in a way that so many people wouldn't have done. Thank you. And Thank for being, you, you know, you're so, and I'm looking at you, the things that you did publicly before, that's really um, an interesting story to go from being this international face of beauty to not being that. And, and I would think yeah. in your own mind you weren't there. Um, and then coming yeah. back out of it again. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for that acknowledgement. Well, it's, it's just terrific. Thank you, Christine, for being my guest today. Thank you, everybody, for listening to Stand Up and Speak Up. We are dedicated in, to encouraging you to remove the mask of embarrassment and to being your best self. We didn't talk about being a victim to scam of an online nature today, but we did talk about bullying. So just be aware that there are people out there that can help you. And if you've been a victim of a scam or cybercrime, visit against AgainstScams.org for assistance and guidance about options and recovery. I'm on the board of directors of SCARS, which is the Society of Citizens Against Relationship Scams, and we are an incorporated nonprofit crime victims assistance organization based in Miami, supporting scam victims worldwide. If you can, make a small donation to us, and I will put that up on our website. This episode has been sponsored by BenfoComplete.com, a vitamin supplement company that supports happy and healthy hands and feet for those with neuropathy. If you or anyone you know struggles with the pins and needles or numbness in your hands and feet, check out our Benfo teaming products at BenfoComplete.com and use the special code STANDUP for a 5% discount on purchase. Again, thanks everybody for being with us today. Go to my website, TheWomanBehindTheSmile.com for additional information and resources. Look for the new book calling, coming out on July 22nd called A Gift Called Fearless. It's really going to be fun. Subscribe to the YouTube channel and enjoy these replays. And again, thanks for being with us. We really enjoy you being here. Thanks, everybody.